18, verses 1 to 16, if you are not there already. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 16. As we continue our series through the life of David. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess this evening that you do know best. That you, Lord, God of heaven, creator, sustainer, that you know what is best. And you are at work even today for your good purposes, for our good, your glory. Lord, so often it's difficult for us to see that. So often it's so difficult for us to wait patiently in faith. So often it's difficult for us to submit our wills to your will. But even this evening as we look at this passage May you work in our hearts as we look at the life of David. A man who submitted to your will. A man who waited in your perfect timing. We pray that you would be honored in all we say and do in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. The KFC original recipe is a secret, a collection of secret ingredients that helped to make KFC so successful. I don't know if you guys like KFC or not. I do. I enjoy KFC. It's not one of those things that I constantly want, but sometimes it just hits you and you want it. And it's good. I enjoy it. Avery loves fried chicken, so she's all about KFC. In fact, driving back and forth from Greenville to Iowa, we drive right through the town where the original KFC is, where KFC originated. And it's amazing to stop in there and to see. But you know what you won't find on the walls there is this collection of secret ingredients. They don't advertise it. It is secret. Maybe in your own family, or maybe you yourself, maybe you have a a famous dish that has a secret ingredient, something that makes it stand out, that takes it from just an ordinary dish and moves it above all the rest. I do not know the secret recipe of KFC, but I do know the secret to David's success. So we've been working our way through the life of David. We were introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16. We saw as this young man, the son of Jesse, was singled out among all of his more impressive brothers. But he's the one who was chosen by God. He's anointed by Samuel. We see in 1 Samuel 17, as then this this young man is thrust into the national spotlight. We see that he is skilled with an instrument, and yet he's also skilled with a sling. 
We've seen all along that he is spirit-filled. He's a man of faith. He's a champion. But what is it that makes David so successful? Why is it that this little shepherd boy has risen to the top? What makes him stand out? What is the secret to his success? It's not his incredible skill with a sling or with a sword, although he is a skilled warrior, as we will see. It's not that he has friends in high places, even though, as we'll see today, that, yes, he is best friends with Jonathan, the crown prince, the son of Saul. And yet that's not his secret. The secret to David's success is faith. David believed that God would do what he promised that he would do. And so David waited in faith. And he was faithful in the little things that God called him to. And God did great things. The secret to David's success is faith. Day in and day out, faith that looks like faithfulness. That comes shining through in our passage this evening in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 16. In this passage, we're primarily dealing with three men. Jonathan, Saul, and David. And what's interesting here is that all three of these men are affected by God's choice of David. And yet we see different responses. So as we work our way through this, we'll see a good friend, a bitter enemy, and a faithful servant. The first thing we see in the first five verses is Jonathan, a good friend. Verse 1 starts out this way, now when he had finished speaking to Saul. So right away, that tells us that we're still in the context of 1 Samuel 17, verses 55 to 57. As David returns from slaying Goliath, he comes back. Abner, standing there with Saul, they approach David. They ask him, whose son are you? Where are you from? He answers, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. And when he has finished speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There's a strong connection here. Something that, that immediately, just in this very brief introduction, knits their souls together. One commentator notes this. This relationship was more than simply on the human level. Both of them loved and trusted the Lord. They shared the same concerns and convictions that the victory is by the Lord for his name's sake. In fact, you see that if you'll turn back with me to chapter 14, verse 16. 
Right? We, we already know that that is David's desire. We saw that in chapter 17, verses 45 to 47. David understood that the victory is the Lord's. To him belongs the glory. But what about Jonathan? First Samuel 14, verse 16, it says this. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. I think I might have the wrong passage here. Let me check one second. I have the wrong passage, and I am not sure where the right passage is, but I promise you it's here somewhere. I'll have to get back to you on that. But there's a passage here in 1 Samuel where we see Jonathan in a very similar situation. And what you see is that Jonathan, like David, is someone who trusts in the Lord. He understands that the victory is by the Lord and it is for his name's sake. So really, understanding that, it's not surprising when you come to verse 1 of chapter 18 that Jonathan and David's souls would be so knit together. Because they are so much alike. They both love the Lord. They want Him to get the glory. That is their desire. That is what they understand. And so it makes sense that, that David or that Jonathan would, would be so impressed and drawn to and encouraged by David's brave faith as seen in chapter 17. And just imagine Jonathan. I don't know if he was there with, with his father Saul all along. If he's watching all these 40 days as Goliath comes out and goes back and, and the army is cowering in fear and, and he sees his father also cowering in fear. And after 40 days, there comes this shepherd boy. Not coming to come for battle. He's not prepared. He's simply coming to deliver supplies. He's on an errand for his father. And this little shepherd boy then steps out and takes on a giant. How encouraging this must have been to Jonathan. It makes sense that their souls would be knit together, that they would be so close. They hit it off. Saul took him, verse 2 tells us, that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Apparently, Saul, too, is impressed and wants to keep David around. But Saul's feelings are much more shallow, as we will go on to see. But verse 3, again, then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Because he loved him as his own soul. Literarily here, it is Jonathan who is taking the lead. It is Jonathan who approaches David with this. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him. He gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. 
This covenant and the giving of these precious gifts to David is a strong statement of affection. In fact, it's possible that there's more here going on than just the fact that Jonathan really likes David. You see, we know that by 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan knows that David has been anointed to be king and Jonathan willingly accepts that and submits himself to David. Possibly as early as 1 Samuel 20, 14, in verses 31 to 32, where Jonathan seems to know this and to have accepted this. It's very possible that even here, this early on, that Jonathan knows that this is more than just a covenant of loyal love, but this is an act of abdication. That Jonathan recognizes that this is a man who's been set apart by God. This is a man who's been called to lead the nation. And Jonathan, as the crown prince, sets aside what is rightly his from a human perspective. Submitting to God's will. I think it is likely that that is the case. I think it's likely that Jonathan knows this. This is a pretty radical step to take to give this man his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. They're valuable gifts. There's a statement that is happening here. And really... The shocking thing in all of this, even as we will go on to see Saul's bitter reaction, Saul's jealousy of David, Jonathan is the one who has the most to lose here. Saul is king. Jonathan is the one here who may never see the throne. And yet he is willing to set that aside recognizing God's good plan. Something that Saul is unable, apparently, to recognize. Verse 5, so David went out whenever Saul sent him. He behaved wisely. Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David is no longer just a court musician. He still serves in that role, as we'll see in a little bit, but now he's been given authority. In the military, he serves a role. Already, we see David here, though the one who has been anointed king, he submitted himself to God's timing, and he is serving faithfully where God has placed him now. He behaves wisely. That's a phrase that's repeated again as we get to verses 12 to 16. It's repeated two more times that David behaved wisely. And so here at the very beginning, we see a good friend, Jonathan, who I would submit to you, recognizing what God, recognizes what God has do, is doing, and he submits himself to God's will. In verses 6 to 13, we see Saul, a bitter 
enemy. There's several contrasts that you have going on in this chapter. First, you have Saul's hate for David as opposed to everyone else's love for David. We've seen Jonathan's love for David already. In verse 5, he was accepted in the sight of all the people. The people loved David. Even we'll see that again in verse 7 and verse 16. Jonathan loves David. The people love David. Going on to the end of this chapter, we'll see that Saul's daughter loves David. Saul alone stands apart as one who hates David. Another contrast that you see throughout this passage is Saul's continued spiral towards destruction and David's continued rise. And you'll see that as we work our way through this. And and it starts here in verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home, coming home from the, the battle, as Goliath is defeated, as the Israelites rout the Philistines, they're coming home, David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. A great victory has occurred. The Lord has given victory. The people are responding in like manner. And the women sang as they danced, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? It appears that maybe Saul is beginning to see what the Lord is doing here as well. And we began to see another contrast between David's humility and his submission, not only to God's will and his timing, but even to Saul's rule and Saul's pride. Verse 9, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. We saw this back in chapter 16. This is not the first time that this has happened as the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, an evil spirit, distressing spirit, if you will, from the Lord came upon Saul. And he prophesied inside the house. The idea here of prophecy is to speak before the people. It's not necessarily what we think of prophecy and and, and looking to the future and, and speaking. But the idea here is more along the lines of just raving speeches, ranting. He's been overcome by this distressing spirit, and he is just raving. And David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Saul is spiraling out of control as he rebels against God, as he refuses to submit to what God has ordained. 
One commentator notes that the person whom the Lord rejected chooses his own road to destruction. Saul is on the road to destruction, unwilling to submit to the Lord. He is overcome by jealousy. He's overcome by fear. Like that's what you see in verse 12. Now, Saul was afraid of David. You would think that, that at this point in the story, that that would be flipped, and David would be afraid of Saul. This is a man who's just tried to kill him. David has had to escape his presence twice. But it's Saul who's afraid. And why is it that Saul is afraid of David? Because the Lord was with him. The author does not want us to miss this. He's repeated it throughout several chapters. He repeats it down again in verse 14. Because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. This is the secret to David's success. The Lord is with him. And David believes. And David is patient. And David submits. And David waits. His faith leads to faithfulness. Saul recognizes this. He knows this. It's likely clear to Saul at this point that, that David has been anointed. This is the one whom God has chosen to be king. He knows this. He recognizes that the Lord is with him. That's what makes David stand apart. Saul knows this. And yet he's unwilling to submit. He's driven by pride and fear and jealousy. He's more concerned about himself than what is good for the nation. He's more concerned about his will than God's will. He's afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. He knows this. He's suffering. He's afraid. He's overcome. He's all alone. That's one of the, the themes of this chapter, is he is all alone. He's all alone in his hate of David, his jealousy of David. He's all alone in the fact that the Lord has departed from Saul. So Saul takes action. He removes him from his presence. He made him captain over a thousand and he went out and came and before came in before the people. Saul, in response, what he does here is he really gives David a new military position. He moves him somewhere else in the army. David is sent out into the field, away from Saul's presence, away from the capital, away from the people. Out is the idea.
So here we see a bitter enemy. A man who is unwilling to accept what God is doing. Finally, in verses 14 to 16, we see David, a faithful servant. All the wrong that has been done to David in this, David is just following the Lord. He's just trying to be faithful. Saul has tried to kill him. David has had to escape from his presence twice. He's been taken from his home and and kept in the palace in in, in Saul's home. He's been moved around in the military. And yet David behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Again, we're reminded here of the unique presence of God with David. We see the evidence of it in in the wisdom with which David behaves. It's evident to all. Saul himself notices it in verse 15. When Saul saw that he behaved wisely again, he's afraid of him. He recognizes that this wisdom is a sign of the Lord who is with him. This is a man who's been set apart. And instead of being thankful, instead of being proud, instead of being excited for the nation, he's jealous, he's afraid. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. He is out in the field. He is faithfully serving. He is visible. And he stands out because the Lord is with him and he behaves wisely. As I mentioned at the beginning, you have three men here. Jonathan, Saul, and David. All three of them are affected by the Lord's choosing his anointing of David. And we see three different reactions. What we see in this passage is Jonathan, who humbly submits to and embraces the Lord's will. Jonathan knows that the Lord's purpose is best. I imagine this isn't something that's probably easy for Jonathan to accept. But he's willing to accept it. Because he trusts the Lord. Because he loves the Lord. Because he knows that the Lord's purpose is best. And if that means that I will not be king, I'm willing to accept that. And he's willing to rejoice that the one that God has chosen is one who, like him, loves the Lord and wants to see him glorified. I think that's one of the first applications that we see from this passage, the simple truth that the Lord's purpose is best. It's one of those things that's easy for us to say, is it not? God's purpose is best. But when it gets down to the nitty-gritty and day in and day out, sometimes it's difficult to accept the Lord's purpose. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it is scary. Now, brothers and sisters, the Lord's purpose is best. 
He's a good God. And in His sovereign providence care, He is accomplishing in you what is best. Even as Romans 8 reminds us that the the pain of this life is nothing to be compared with the glory that is coming. God is doing something, and though we may not see it, it is best. His purpose is best. It is always best. Saul can't see that. Saul foolishly spirals out of control in rebellion against God, unwilling to accept not only that his purpose is best, but that his way in accomplishing his purpose is best. The Lord's ultimate goal is good. And his way to accomplish that purpose, every step along the way, it is good as well. Saul's not willing to accept that. He spirals out of control to his own destruction. The Lord's purpose is best. The Lord's way is best. And finally, the Lord's timing is best. David understands that. David faithfully serves the Lord. Though he has been anointed king, he serves as a servant and he serves faithfully. Why? Because he believes the Lord. Because he has faith and he knows what God has promised, God will do in his timing. And his timing is best. Really behind this entire chapter, this entire section, is the provident hand of a good God. And we see three men reacting differently to the circumstances that they can't see, that they don't understand, but God does. Two of them are willing to accept that and to submit their wills and their timing to his will. As you look at a narrative passage like this, A lot of times the application, what we're looking at, is taking big ideas that are underneath the passage. What does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about how we should respond to God? This passage tells us that the Lord's purpose is best. This passage tells us that the Lord's way is best. This passage tells us that the Lord's timing is best. And this passage tells us that we should believe him and be faithful in the present. Be faithful in the little things. Day in and day out, in whatever circumstance the Lord has placed you in, be faithful. And trust that he is good. Trust that his purpose will be accomplished in his timing for your good and his glory. We're going to close with the song, God Makes No Mistakes, number 681. God makes no mistakes. My life I give to you, O Lord. 
Use me, I pray. May I glorify your precious name in all I do and say. Let me trust you in the valley dark as well as in the light, knowing you will always lead me. Your will is always right. Let's stand together and sing. Number 681, God makes no mistakes.